That's what the schedule email feature is for. <laughs> yeah, I should start doing that. But I, but I, I think I think the people that are, are probably prone to sleeping in also don't have the organizational capacity to schedule emails regularly. Like, <laughs> you can you can really fuck up someone's day with that though if you send like a five a.m. thing. It's the first thing they see when they roll over in bed and they yeah. see it right like <laughs> Saturday morning. Nick's on my case. Well, they need to exercise more um, discipline in their leisure time and. Ignore it. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the district attorney's office is using a controversial statute to prosecute four teenagers in the Linda Fricke murder trial. And a recent decision by that office to revive the habitual offender law has some critics concerned. Residents of Gordon Plaza are upset that their own attorneys are possibly positioning themselves to gain access to the millions of dollars set aside for them by the city of New Orleans. And the Orleans Parish School Board may be granting itself power to override the superintendent on charter renewals. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Josh. Hey, Carolyn. And education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Nick, first up with you in criminal justice, Orleans Parish DA Jason Williams is using a felony murder statute to prosecute four teenagers in a deadly carjacking. Critics say the law is too harsh given the ages of the defendants. What's happening there with, with those kids and what he's trying to use? Yeah, and everyone who in New Orleans has, has probably, if if they've paid attention to the news in the last year, um, heard about this case to some extent. Um, this was a 73-year-old woman who was carjacked in mid-city last year um, by by four teenagers and their surveillance video of the incident and kind of showed the, shows these uh, teenagers surrounding the car and trying to force her out of the car and ultimately driving away, but her arm gets tangled in the seatbelt of the car She's dragged for for a block or so, um, and her arm is actually eventually severed from her body, and and, and she died in the street. Um, so this really horrific incident that you know caused a lot of reasonable public outrage. So what's occurred since then is is four teens were arrested in in the in the carjacking, and the district attorney decided to charge them all as adults, um, which. You know, it was something that he had promised to do, uh, promised never to do during his campaign. Um, but the actual mechanism, the way he's charging them, he's charging them all with second degree murder. And the the way he's doing that is by accusing them of felony murder. So he is not alleging that any of the four teenagers involved in the carjacking actually intended to kill Miss Fricky, um, only that they were engaged in, in a felony, in this case, a simple robbery, a, a Carjacking and unarmed carjacking. Um, one of the one of the kids had pepper spray, but none had a, had a weapon. But because they were engaged in this felony when she was killed, they can be charged with murder. Um, and you know this, this is a controversial legal doctrine um, that that you know has been on the books in the United States forever. But but that a lot of people have objected to because you are charging someone with murder despite the fact that they had no intention of doing it. In this case, the fact that these are juveniles sort of compounds the the problems that people have with felony murder in the first place, right. because you know research shows us that juveniles 
tend not to think about the potential consequences of their actions to the same degree that a, a reasonable adult would. Um, they're more influenced by peer pressure and things like that and just don't have the same kind of mental capacity that an adult would, you know, who was maybe, you know, committing a felony and should have more foresight in, into what could happen. Right. And uh, during the campaign, as you said, as candidate Jason Williams was uh, pretty adamant about not charging teens or juveniles as adults. And how's he justifying that now, that decision? Well, basically, he has said that the the nature of this crime, that it was so horrible that, that you know, it requires sort of the most, uh, the harshest punishments available. Um, and, and it's hard to reconcile that necessarily with what, what he said during the campaign when he did talk a lot about um, the very things that I just mentioned, the, you know, um, sort of more limited capacities of, of juveniles, um, how, you know, we should think about youth as, as a mitigating factor anytime we're, we're talking about punishing kids. Um, so I think that's part of it. On the one hand, you know, if these kids were charged in, in juvenile court, the harshest sentence would be for them to be incarcerated until they were 21 years old. Um, so that for, you know, is, is, would have been three more years from, from today for the eldest, uh, John Honoré, who was, um, the one who actually, you know, grabbed Miss Ricky and, and tried to pull her from the car. And so I think, you know, people would make the argument that's not, that's not a harsh enough punishment. That's not, you know, sufficient to, to justify, to, to deal with what occurred. Um, on the other hand, he is charging all of them with with murder, and that is a is a life sentence with the possibility of parole after twenty five years. Um, so there is a there is a, a gulf in between those two, and there are ways in which he could have charged the case differently, not charged them with murder, not used this felony murder doctrine, um, which would have maybe found some in between there. Your story suggests that uh, the the defense will like, or the prosecution rather, will um, likely rest on, I, I guess it really sort of turns on them, the other defendants um, being witnesses against Honoré and sort of making him the, trying to position him as the, the fall guy. Did Is that right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that is right. Um, so, so two of the other defendants have, have said, their lawyers have said, you know, we plan on blaming this on John Honoré. Um, and that that's going to be our defense at trial. And, you know, what, what my kind of, what my story sort of looks at is how by using this felony murder charge on all four of the kids, it basically does not distinguish any levels of culpability among them. Um, so in the video, you see John Honoré pulling Linda Fricky out of the car, pepper spraying her. There's another girl who gets in the front seat um, and she can sort of be seen struggling with Fricky as well. And then there's two other girls who get in the back seat and don't really have any physical interaction with her at all. And one of the girls gets out of the car after about 10 seconds and isn't even in the car when it drives away. And, you know, so prosecutors allege that they were all working in coordination and mm. and the girl who got out of the car was was acting as a lookout and that, you know, they're all equally culpable. What defense attorneys and, and, you know, a number of other people I spoke to say is they're clearly not equally culpable. Um, there's a big difference between, you know, 
dragging someone out of a car and driving it away and not stopping when, when, you know, she's being dragged and getting in a car for 10 seconds and getting out. Um, and the way that this case has been charged doesn't really allow for any consideration of, of whether or not one of those actions is, is significantly worse than another. All right. Nick, let's kind of pull back a little bit and maybe this is better analysis that I'm going to ask you to do after we talk about the next story, but kind of leading into the next story, it's yet another example of how different in action, the work that's being done under DA Williams is all of it from the campaign that he ran. It seems to be a recurring theme in, in the way he's handling all the work there, that it it's just seems to be a really different in practice um, method and and outcomes and work than than what he had suggested was going to be the case while he was campaigning. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I think there's a few different ways to look at this um, and and kind of depending who you talk to, I think some people and some people I spoke to for this article would say this is clearly him um, succumbing to political pressure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of outrage about, around this case. And he went back on his promises and is charging this case the way he is because he wants to look tough on crime and he wants to appear, um, you know, like he's responding. And, and I think that, the you know, what I think the DA has said and what some other people would say is, you know, he's coming to terms with the realities of the office these are decisions that, you know, prosecutors have made before him and they've made them for good reasons. And he's realizing that his campaign rhetoric at the time was unrealistic and that he actually needs to be doing these things in order to keep people safe. And he's realized that, you know, since he's taken office, um, you know, that's what and we'll, we'll talk about the habitual offender law. But, you know, what he said when he made the decision to to start using that again was. You know, there's campaign promises and then there's the oath of office. And I mean, I, you know, I, I the oath of office requires me to to do this. Um, you know, obviously, lots of people disagree with that. Um, and I, I think there there's good reasons, as we can talk about, to, to question, you know, why exactly he's making these decisions. But, yeah, yeah. Um, the, I think kind of the two the two uh, competing explanations. Yeah, it's really interesting just because it, in particular this week, I mean, drawing back even further, and none of us are from Chicago, but then they, they just had an election this week in which their mayor, it was a, it was a sort of tough on crime candidate against a, a progressive um, candidate who came from behind, had a 2%, two percent um, poll numbers before the campaign, who ended up winning and it's just in, in another city that's that has a significant major crime problem in the United States. So I think it's just it's a really interesting moment in this country where we have these cities that are dealing with major crime, and then you have campaign promises, and people who are trying to address some of the stuff that makes that that is keeping people up at night and making people really upset. But then when they get in the the job when they get on in the office, um, the realities of having to do these things are really different from what they had said they were going to do. And yeah, that's- Paul, 
Paul Vallis, the loser in that campaign that you mentioned, is, is well known to Louisianans and New Orleans in particular as kind of the, the father of, or one of, you know, the charter school movement and switch here. Right. Uh, but just like you said, one, you know, one analysis I saw was a, a breakdown of voters up there, and it was people who had been more affected by crime were more likely to have voted for, uh, is it Brandon? Brandon Johnson. Yeah. Were more likely to have voted for him saying that people, you know, they they want that candidate who's running for public safety. So it is it is interesting to watch all that play out and when, when this crime is going up and down. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Nick. I just, Val, no. Val is well known to <laughs> us down here. So then let's talk about the next story here. It's a good segue. Earlier this month, District Attorney Williams announced he was going back on his campaign promise to never use the habitual offender law, which can dramatically increase prison sentences for people who've been convicted of prior felonies. Tell us about um, what, what, that, what that law does and how it is that he is actually saying he's going to use it now. Sure. So the habitual offender law is, you know, maybe more commonly known to people as a three strikes law. So if people have had prior felonies, then those felonies can be used to enhance their sentence. So to give them longer prison sentences than they would have gotten if they didn't have any previous felonies. So the DA, when he when he ran, said he would never use this law. Um, it was one of kind of the one of the major things I think that appealed to to kind of more progressive criminal justice reform people um, during his campaign. The other candidates in the in in the race said that they would use it very rarely and sparingly. Um, it had historically been used really frequently in New Orleans um, and had been threatened, um, you know, regularly on kind of low level crimes. And all of the candidates said, we're not going to do that anymore. But the, but the DA was the only one who said, I will never use this and I will never threaten it. And that was his kind of way to, to distinguish himself. Um, now, you know, a few years in, into office, he has gone back and basically uh, come out and said, like the, the, people who he was running against previously said, I'm going to use this, but I'm going to use it very sparingly and, you know, with way more discretion than has been previously done. Um, and, you know, as we were just talking about, some people are quite upset. Some people have said, you know, we've been saying he needs to be using this all along and are, are applauding the move. Um, but, you know, it has all sorts of implications in the, in the, uh, you know, criminal court system, not just when the prosecutors decide to use it, but what during plea negotiations um, and when, you know, defendants are trying to decide whether or not to go to trial or, or take a plea deal. Because it's a tactic that's used by the DA's office, at least in this in this particular instance. If it's a habitual offender, they get offered a plea, they reject the plea. If they suggest that they're going to enact this law, it's almost like um, the threat of the filibuster, you just, they, they will instantly cave because if it is applied, if they do in fact use it, the, um, the sentencing is much harsher. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the case we looked at, which was the, the first case that the DA's office said, um, they were planning to utilize the, the habitual offender law was a case where a man was, was charged with, with rape, um, a charge that came with a maximum sentence of 40 years. But what we know is that the DA's office had actually offered him a plea deal of 20 years if he didn't go to trial. He rejected that plea deal. Um, and they said, okay, in that case, 
we're going to plan on filing the habitual offender statute if you're convicted. And that will make your minimum sentence 40 years. Mm. So it'll double the sentence, guaranteed double the sentence of what we just offered you. And what that's called is a, is a trial tax. Basically, it's an acknowledgement that, you know, we believe 20 years is an acceptable sentence for this case if you if you agree to it. But now, if you reject it, we're going to we're going to double that, not necessarily because we think that's a, a it, it's hard to look at it any other way than just for the, the choice of, of exercising your right to trial. And, you know, this is has been pretty roundly criticized by a lot of the groups that, that you know, Williams has has sort of been affiliated with. And, you know, you can go back and look at, at things he said during the campaign, specifically saying there will not be a trial tax. Talk about what the what the critics are um, alleging that it's it's racially discriminatory. Yeah, the critiques of the law are that one, it's racially discriminatory, and it's racially discriminatory in kind of two ways. One is that the way our criminal justice system has kind of functioned over the last several decades, they would argue, has been racially discriminatory, which means that people are more likely to have felony charges if they're black. So that means. You're more likely to have it to like, um, like compounded interest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a greater chance that you are going to even have the possibility of being charged as a multiple offender if you were subject to, you know, racially discriminatory police tactics um, in the last several decades. Um, and then also because of prosecutors sort of implicit bias or explicit bias, they can choose whether or not to to file an habitual offender uh, statute on someone. So they can decide to use it against black people if if they'd like to. And you know, if if a same defendant, if a defendant, a white defendant, is charged with the same things and has the same you know history, they can decide not to. Um, so those are that's kind of the argument, and that's the same argument that the DA made as he was running um, running for office. Another issue is that it can force people who are actually innocent to plead guilty. Um, and that is, you know, by basically ramping up the possible sentence and the risk of going to trial, a person might say, you know, I'm, it's just not worth it. And I'd rather go ahead and plead guilty, even though um, I haven't committed this crime, take, you know, whatever probation over a few years, rather than risk going to trial losing and having the book thrown at me and, you know, spending a lot longer time in prison. Um, and that is also an argument that the DA made prior to taking office. Um, so those are kind of some of the, the concerns that people have now that he's brought it back, um, that these things are going to start happening more and more in New Orleans. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you.
Okay, Joshua. Residents of Gordon Plaza want to make sure they get the money set aside by the city for their relocation and not in the hands of their own class action attorneys. What's the story here? Yeah, so so this is um, kind of an interesting, somewhat complicated development in, in the story. Here's the story, kind of from the, the perspective of somebody who's been following this for, for the past year or so, is, is that you have the city council... Uh, last year, finally deciding to allocate $35 million um, to this group of residents who are living in Gordon Plaza, who are uh, living on top of a toxic landfill, some of whom have been there for decades. Um, and and there are, you know, there were at one time 67 properties I think it's down to 65 properties at this point. There, there's something like 55, you know, of, of those properties that are occupied. And this money, this $35 million for, for that group of people would be completely life-changing in a, in, in a very positive way. The city has not dispersed those funds yet because they're going through their uh, due diligence process that, that they've indicated it is necessary before they they actually dole out this money and basically that's that's them uh getting these appraisals that they can rely on um before actually uh dispersing this money to these these residents so so that's been going on for the past nine months or so and um there's this whole other component to the story though which is that there's this uh, this class action lawsuit that goes all the way back to the the 90s. It was filed in 1993, and this class is is made up of um, former residents, current residents, um, people who were employed at the elementary school that that was on this. Uh, that was the, near the, the Gordon Plaza homes uh, and, and, and students of that elementary school. And that class is made up of uh, more than 5,000 people. So basically what you've had is the class attorneys uh, for, for, for this class of 5,000 people filed a motion at the end of 2021 saying that there's this protective order that the state judge put in place, essentially barring the defendants, which include the city and, and, and the city council, uh, from communicating with the class members without the agreement and the participation of the class attorneys. And the city council has violated that protective order by communicating with the residents of Gordon Plaza. Um, without the participation and agreement of the class attorneys. And also, this $35 million belongs to the class. This, this, the, the, the city council is, according to the, these class attorneys, is, is acting in this extrajudicial manner of, you know, try, trying to circumvent the authority of the court um, to to allocate this thirty five million dollars uh, when 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 they have no 
right to do so. Mm -hmm. That $35 million belongs to the class. The problem with that, um, there, there are a couple of major problems with that from the perspective of the people who are still living there as we speak. Um, one is that if you take $35 million and you divide that by, you know, 5,000 after, you know, accounting for attorney's fees, right. which are not nothing, um, you know, that, that is no longer a life-changing amount by, by, by any stretch of the imagination. That means that those residents would not be able to move off of the, those properties right. based on that and amount of, yeah. Let me, let me ahead. just qualify just a little bit, because when you say life-changing amount, yeah, what, what we're really talking about is life-changing in that it, it will allow these people who've been sitting on this polluted ground in their homes for 30 years um, to move, not suddenly they're millionaires and they get to go fly the world on private jets. It's that they will That's be right. able That's to, right. to exactly. move their homes out of um, a toxic waste dump and potentially deal with perhaps health problems that are a result of, of living on the toxic waste dump too. That's absolutely right. And I appreciate the qualification. Um, you know, nobody, none, none of the residents are, are going to be living a jet setting life, right. you know, as a result of, of this money that the city council has allocated. What, what they're asking for is enough money to relocate, you know, and, and still, I mean, I, I, I think many, if not most of them, if not all of them, I can't speak for each one, but you know, they're this 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 is their home. The city is their home. They 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 still want to live here if they can help it. Um and 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 the amount of money that we're talking about um would per household would be would be enough for that. But it's but to 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 your point, it's not it's not like they're you know gonna be multi-millionaires as a result of, of this allocation. Yeah. But but by, by contrast. The, if if this money were split among five thousand plus people, yeah, all all of a sudden that that is that is no one is going to be able to to afford to relocate based on that amount of money at all. So, right. um, that's kind of, that's kind of what what's what's at stake. The class attorneys, um, just to be clear here, have withdrawn this motion that that sought to order the city council to um, deposit that $35 million into the class registry. Um, but, you know, there's, there's nothing saying that they can't bring that kind of motion again at some point if, if they choose to. And, and in one of their filings, they seem to have left that door pretty wide open. I think you suggested that the, the priority is the class. So from the, the class, you know, the, the class council's perspective, uh, if, if I can be so bold as to try to um, speak to that, their, their perspective is that we, we represent the class. You know, there, there are 5,000 plus members. You know, these, these residents who are currently there are part of our class. We represent them just like we represent everybody else in this class. Um, and, 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 you know, this class action has, has yielded um, fruit, if you will, previously. There, there was a 
uh, a $75 million uh, judgment that came down. Um, I believe it was, I, I believe it was just last year. The, the problem is it, it, it's twofold. Um, from the perspective of the 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 residents who are still there, you know, right now, yep, is, is that you know, first part, like I was saying, the if if you start dividing that sum, seventy five yep. million dollars or thirty five million dollars, or divide by five thousand, that is not enough to relocate. And and number two is that the city doesn't have a great track record of actually paying people money that they've that they've won through litigation mm. and the state constitution um has a uh, a provision that prevents the um seizure of those kinds of funds so so there's no recourse really you know, yeah the it's it's really up to the city to decide when i mean they they, they have an amazing amount of discretion um, to decide when and what they end up paying. It, it's kind of when when they deign to, essentially. Mm-hmm. And these these um residents are saying that, you know, um we can't we can't rely on that. Here's here's this $35 million that the city council has allocated. Um and everybody who who is trying to get in the way of that, even if you're our own class council. The one resident, Jesse Perkins, put it, you know, either shut the hell up or just get out of the way. Mm-hmm. This this is this is our salvation, mm. essentially, mm. To, to finally be able to move um, into homes that are not located on top of a toxic landfill. Right. Like we've talked about, you know, Josh, like the, that these people were sold the American dream, right? I was just looking up some of their home prices in the 80s. And people were buying these houses for $37,000 for $40,000. And to be able to now get a 1,500, 2,000 square foot home in this city, you know, you just don't have that kind of value that is vested over this time. You're you're looking at 200,000, I'm thinking minimum. So to be able to have that life-changing amount is is difficult. All right. Well, thanks, Josh, for keeping on top of it. Okay, you got it. Marta, the Orleans Parish School Board may once again approve annual charter renewal decisions dictating which schools close and which remain open, but board members are considering whether to lower the threshold required to override the superintendent. Tell us what's happening here. Yeah, so this would this would be a pretty dramatic shift in the um, school management landscape here in New Orleans if, if it does pass. Right now what's happening is a, a proposed policy has been read and it's being discussed by the board members. Um, and, you know, that they could potentially vote on it this month. And what that policy would do, as is currently written, would lower the number. Step back really quick. In New Orleans, we all know the superintendent holds basically unilateral power to decide which charter schools uh, stay open and which will close each year. Um, and that's generally based on when their contracts are up for renewal. Um, in most traditional districts where charters have sprung up, uh, boards are heavily involved in voting on those contracts and approving which charters open. Um, but that's not the case here after decades of reform. It's basically up to the superintendent. So right now, the only way the board has a say on what the superintendent does with the charter school when the superintendent presents her recommendation either to keep it open or to close it is the board, the seven-member board, must muster five votes to override her her 
recommendation, essentially. That's as it exists today. Now, yes, as it exists today, which okay. is a, it's a huge, you know, requ vast requirement. It's not a simple majority. It's, it's five members of the entire board. And that's even if the entire board isn't present. So it's five mm. members no matter what. It's a very mm. high threshold to mark reach. And what they're proposing is to move that to a simple majority, uh, which could lower that number from the, that five out of seven requirement to, let's say there were only four board members present, it could be as low as three uh, mm. members could, you know, approve or kind of override the superintendent. Do you think that the um, brouhaha with Plessy recently had anything to do with this? I don't think so. I think this has kind of been a, this is a long First of all, the Plessy thing is just different in that it's it's facilities and money, um, kind of. Whereas this is more, um, I would say, about the the centralization of power and sort of decentralization um, coming back around. Now, you would say a lot of things in this district just got completely decentralized, and then um, you know we're seeing a little bit of centralization and distribution of power again. Um, and I think that's that's what we're seeing here with. When the state came in and took over all the schools, um, eventually Act 91 is what kind of codified that that state system that gave a lot of power just to the superintendent. And the state legislatures actually did allow for this change to happen a couple of years back, but the board up until now had not considered a policy change on it. You know, this is clearly some pushback um, against the superintendent's office, and maybe not in specifically Avis Williams. But, but definitely against the office and the power of the office. Can you speak a little more broadly about what, what do you think that represents? Yeah, I think it is kind of trying to give, you know, some power back to the people and the voters. Um, and, you know, really symbolically, I think it's a large step um, just in terms of, you know, having what had happened after Katrina when the state did come in and take over everything and kind of vest that power um, for a long time, it was vested in the state, and now it's been, you know, hyper-focused in the superintendent. So this would kind of redistribute that a little bit more um, to the people and like an elected school board. I think where you're going to see controversy is people people argue that in such a district as ours, in an all-charter district, that, you know, there, there needs to be just kind of one decision maker who can, you know, put blinders on and not be distracted by politics is what, you know, people argue but, you know, board members had a really robust conversation at that committee meeting last month. And what they talked about, many of them were like, you know, politics are going to be involved no matter what the threshold is for us to the requirement for us to vote. And then there were a couple board members who served for a long time. And, you know, they were like, honestly, this is just more of a risk assessment. Like, who do you who do you and who do the people trust more or less? Do you do you have confidence in the board or do you have confidence in the superintendent? And there were you know, board members who were speaking to both sides. They were like, you know, we've seen board members go to jail before for being bribed. Um, you mm. know, we've also seen superintendents maybe get power hungry. So really, it, it's just kind of a calculated risk assessment is what they're calling it. Right. Do you think anticipate any more closure announcements in the next month or two? I don't think so. I, I think that's pretty well set for the year. Um, obviously, you know, making big news right now is the closures in Jefferson Parish, um, which I do think is really interesting for Orleans just in terms of highlighting how those processes are going. So in Jefferson, um, the board had recommended closing 10 schools and then they're going to close eight. Mm. Um, Jefferson has more students than Orleans. It's a bigger, it's the biggest district in the, in the state. Um, so obviously that's pretty, you know, shocking news, especially for students at those schools, families at the schools and staff. Um, 
but it's just really interesting to watch in contrast with how closures are happening here, which is kind of a, it's a much slower play out of a process. And even though people are criticizing Jefferson for sort of moving quickly on this um, recommendations from this consultant to close those eight schools, you know, it was done at public meetings and held in a public way versus what we're seeing with some of these charter mergers in Orleans Parish yeah. is more, you know, charter board handshake deals at smaller charter board meetings and, you know, agreeing to hand in charters. Um, so I, I think they both, I think they can both be rightly criticized in a sort of kind of a lack of um, public involvement in both of those manners. Right. It's so good to have you back fully full-time on the beat. Thanks. Me too. It's been good to hear from folks. Keep calling. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys and um, have a good weekend. Cool. You too. Okay. (laughs) Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Joshua Rosenberg, and Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.